I had uh, not slept well Friday night. I'd had my flu shot. And I didn't tell them to give me the regular dose, not give me the senior dose. So my arm was really sore. So I, every time I rolled over, it'd wake me up. So then I had to get up early to go fill in for my daughter, who's off playing in a tennis tournament. I had to fill in for her at the robotics tournament as a volunteer. I was there all day. And uh, so I, I sneaked out at four, came home to rest a little while. Then we went to the symphony last night. And the first half of the program was so-so, really so-so. Uh, but then the second half was a pianist by the name of Bronfman playing Beethoven's piano concerto. That's worth staying up for. Uh, to, have, to have someone that talented who you know has worked for years to make it look easy, but the technical, uh, and I'm not a musician, but I, I appreciate excellence, and it was beautiful. Reviewing uh, Colossians, Paul's writing to a church he's never been to. Takes guts to do that, right? Who's this, who's this guy? Well, apparently Epaphras or whoever started it told him about Paul and who he was, some of the things he, they, they had seen Paul do to authenticate himself. And so uh, uh, it, it is uh, remarkable, again, this letter. Uh, probably a high percentage of Gentiles. And remember, all the, most of the stuff we read in here is through the eyes of God's chosen people chosen to be the vehicle. There's a whole bigger world going on outside of these other uh, people that we're reading about. And so th these Gentiles had their, their influences, their traditions, their problems. Uh, but there's also Jewish influence too, as we talked about, there's over 10,000 male Jews in, uh, estimated to be in the area. Uh, chapter 1 uh, talks about the thanksgiving. He gives thanksgiving and prayers for the Colossians. Thanksgiving and praise for Christ. He talks about Christ as being the visible image of God. If you want to know what God's like, read what Jesus was. Read about Jesus. That's, that, that's an evidence. That's a, a visible image of the invisible God. Uh, he reiterates that all things were created through Christ. That takes some for, uh, for all of you who are scientists <laughs> and uh, really are, are into scientific knowledge, uh, trying to balance scientific knowledge with the miraculous is a tough struggle. Uh, at some point you have to grapple with this, uh, that if the resurrection, you can have one miracle. If there's one miracle, there can be more. And so the miraculous versus supernatural versus uh, the natural that we can see and understand and predict and all. Uh, this is just some of the deep things to think about. Jesus is the head of the church, firstborn of all who will rise from the dead. He's been to church already, our worship service already, first service. Uh, one of the questions about, I don't want to ruin it for you, but uh, I guess I will ruin it. But what if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? But thankfully he did. 
And he talks about, Paul, Paul talks about his mission. His mission was to reveal God's secret. The secret that had been pent up through all these chapters and, and words. That is, the gospel is for everybody. It's not limited to one nationality. It's not limited to males or females. It's not Jew or Gentile. It's for everybody. In chapter 2, he's encouraging them to not have to go back into any of their former traditions or be uh, uh, enticed by the Jewish demands to follow the law, but to realize they have it all already. They're complete. Nothing else is needed. Jesus has forgiven all of our sins and canceled the record. We, We use the analogy that in the old days they wrote on papyrus and the ink didn't really permeate the, the dried reeds, but just kind of sat on top of it, and you could wipe it away with a sponge. And that's kind of the view. You know, you've got a granite countertop. You can wipe it away pretty easily with just a damp cloth. And whatever was messing up your countertop is gone. And that's what sin did for us. Okay, chapter 3. I'll do down through, I forget what verse. 17. 17. And then we'll let Josh pontificate some more. <laughs> I've got to go back. Let's go back and read just a little bit there at the end of chapter 2 because without that, the transition uh, is a little, little stark. Remember, you've died with Christ. He has set you free from the evil powers of this world. There are evil powers. There, are, there is evil. There is a bad thing. There are bad things. So why do you keep on following rules of the world such as don't handle, don't eat, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that are gone as soon as we use them. These rules may seem wise, but they require, because they require strong devotion, humility, they require severe bodily discipline, but they have no effect when it comes to conquering a person's evil thoughts and desires. And so here comes the transition. Since... In my version I'm reading from today, it says, Since, some say because, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights, and here's an interesting translation here, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Where Christ is, in most versions it says, where Christ is, comma, sitting at the right hand of God. This one says, where Christ sits at God's right hand in place of honor and power. Let heaven fill your thoughts. Do not think only about things here on earth. For you died when Christ died. Your real life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your real life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in his glory. So, seeking the things that are above. Putting your your eyes on the realities of heaven. That's, That's part of the human struggle is that some days, how do I comprehend this? Putting your putting your attention on something, you know, if you uh, if your mind is cluttered up with all the things that are going on in your life, things about job, interpersonal relationships, challenges with uh, illness, uh, whatever it is, past guilt from things you may have been involved with, past relationship failures, filling your mind up with something good about the realities of heaven can help us 
of struggle with this this idea that this is this life that we're living right here. While it's good, there are a lot of things to be happy about. Uh, there's something better waiting for us, particularly when we uh, go through bad times. We hope there is something better. Uh, you, this, this idea of, of being um, uh, that your life is, is clean and has been hidden, again, is something we struggle with. So, uh, verses 5 through 11. Killing off the parts of the old life. Let's, let's read that. So put to death, again, because you have this promise that God has cleansed you. You have that promise of a new life. You're going to have, be, have glory with him and, uh, when he comes back. Uh, this is a, another conclusion. So then, he's going to give us some ethical teaching. Because you've gotten all these gifts, here are some things you aspire to. You will struggle with. But here are some of the ethical teachings he's going to give them. He's, remember, he's praised them. He's told them he prays for them. He's talked to them about Jesus as their Savior. And now he's going to give them some, some harder teaching. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Things are lurking inside. Have nothing to do with sexual sin. Impurity, lust, shameful desires. Don't be greedy for, good, for the good things of this life. For that is idolatry. God's terrible anger will come upon those who do such things. You used to do them when you were in your former life. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language. Don't lie to each other for you have stripped off your old evil nature with its wicked deeds. Uh, in the old days when someone was baptized, they often, after they came out of the baptist, they would put on a new set of clothes. Oftentimes white. Or people were baptized in white clothes to symbolize purity without any dirt in it. In its place, you've clothed yourself with a brand new nature that is continually being renewed as you learn more and more about Christ who created this nature. So, setting our sights, Hebrews 12, 2 says, Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race for him. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight. N.T. Wright talks about this struggle of not just focusing on details or rules, thinking about the big picture, uh, learning to believe what doesn't at the moment feel real. I think as a human being, we all struggle with this idea there is this afterlife, there's going to be this uh, heavenly place, whether it's the renewed earth or it's off in the sky somewhere. There is this promise. It says, learning to believe what, is, what doesn't at the moment feel true is an essential part of being Christian. So it's part of that we have it, but not yet all. We do have this reality, but there's something better that we're looking for. And then he starts on this ethical teaching. If you think about uh, uh, killing off the parts that belong to the earth, we only have to look at the headlines of the past couple of weeks about the uh, sexual trysts of uh, uh, Wasserstein, the uh, Hollywood producer. You say Wasserstein, I say Wasserstein. But uh, I think the count's up to some 55 or 60 women now who've accused him of 
sexual harassment. Uh, it seems like every day, you know, Bill O'Reilly, uh, several other Fox News. This week it was an NBC guy. It's not just limited to conservative TV people. There was a MSNBC, NBC guy named Halpern who was relieved of his duties this week because of sexual harassment or sexual relationships with somebody he shouldn't have been involved with. He lists fornication, adultery. William Barclay says that in Christianity, Jesus introduced the one completely new virtue, and that was chastity. When he said in the Sermon on the Mount, what did the, what did the law say about sexual relationships? What did the Ten Commandments say? Don't just look at me, speak up. Is it not? I'm not going to commit adultery. Is not commit adultery? Okay. What did Jesus say? If you commit adultery in your heart, he said, you know, you've heard the Old Testament say, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say, if you look on a woman with lust, you've committed adultery already. It's a, a totally new concept. It doesn't just mean you, you can't literally do it. But the mental aspects, wow, this is a new bar we suddenly have set. Uh, if you think about the sexual sin in the Old Testament, starting with multiple wives, by implication, in Genesis 2 and 3, man has woman, the two become one, their husband and wife. That seems to be God's pattern. Suddenly in Genesis chapter 4, we read of the first instance of multiple wives. The uh, uh, Lamech, who was a descendant of Cain, in Genesis 4 took multiple wives. Abraham and Sarah promised an offspring. They get tired of waiting on God. What happens? Sarah gives Abraham his handmaid. Hagar has Ishmael. And we're reaping the consequences of that today. The enemy, the enmity between Ishmael, between Ishmael and the promise of Abraham, Israel, is still going on today. The fierce uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. The implication of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah gathered outside Lot's house, bring the visitors out. Let us have sex with them. Implication of homosexual behavior there. Lot's daughters slept with their father because they didn't want to wait to have husbands and have children. They were afraid they wouldn't have children. The rape of Dinah. Tamar and Judah. On and on, sexual sin became prevalent in violation of apparently God's ordinances. So he's encouraging them to adopt a new behavior. Many times uh, Israel is, is depicted as they played the harlot. They were not a faithful wife to Christ. The church is pictured as the bride of Christ. So anyway, uh, Romans 8, 12 talks about us not uh, keep on following the sinful desire, but by, through the power of the Spirit that we can conquer um, these vices. So the vices of passion, uh, it, it's listed there, passion or lust, 
is uncontrolled sexual appetite. Uh, Wilt Chamberlain, the famous basketball player, bragged one time that he had, had relationships with 20,000 women. And the mathematicians in the audience started computing the number of days that he had lived and were taking one and a half per day. Whether it's humanly possible, we don't know. But that's what he did. To have 55 or 60 women who have related sexual harassment by somebody. This is uncontrolled sexual appetite. Evil, this evil desire. When you read about some of the crimes that are committed as they are described, someone trying to hurt someone else to do this pure evil. We realize that this, this world is full of problems. Covetousness, wanting something that's not legally yours. If you desire so much the automobile that your neighbor has that you're willing to kill to get it, that is true covetousness. And then uh, further list uh, of, of evil desire or anger. Anger seething underneath can just ruin a person. Proverbs 15 once says a gentle answer can turn anger. Uh, Matthew 5 in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, you've heard, don't murder. But I say, again, this higher bar, if you, uh, if you uh, are angry with your neighbor, you can be guilty of murder. Uh, another one listed is rage or wrath. We hear we hear of instances of road rage, where literally somebody gets so mad about being cut off, or in my case, if they won't go on when the light turns green because they're texting, <laughs> that I come close to road rage. Please, I'm begging you, put your phone up. I'm begging, you, please put your phone up. I want you to go because. I'm retired, I have nowhere to go, but I want to get there quick. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to sit here at this intersection all day. And it's not limited to men or women or old. Yeah. And then what happens? They realize finally because somebody's going on. They go on, but what happens? The light turns red and you have to wait another cycle. That's terrible. Okay, I had to get that off my chest. Uh, malice, uh, the attitude that you want to harm somebody else, slander, filthy language, don't lie. Now these last three are all related to the, the tongue. And the tongue, as you know, uh, slander is the, when you speak a lie about someone else. But the tongue is an interesting creature. Sometimes you can tell the truth about somebody else in a way that can be destructive. Just the way you say it. Did you know? Did you know that he did that? Could be true. But the way you're saying it is in an unkind manner. 
for several years, I was in the Rotary Club. That's where you get to pay money to go eat rubber chicken once a week. <laughs> but it's a, it's a great organization. Here's, here's what the Rotary has is their four-way test. They say, this is how you should live as you talk. You should ask yourself, is it the truth? Is it fair to all concerned? Will it build goodwill and better friendships? Will it be beneficial to all concerned? Now, I, as a Christian, you can live with that, right? It's a very high ethical calling for you to do. We've been called to do, to do that. All right, so since God chose you, clothe yourself. Here's the positive aspect. Avoid these all these bad things. But clothe yourselves in tender mercy, kindness, humility, patience, godliness. And as you as you aspire to all of this, the roadmap then is in verse 16, 17. Here's how you do it. Verse 16, 17. Let the words of Christ in all their richness dwell in your heart. When you really think about it, there aren't that many words of Christ that you have to know. If you were in first service, you know that David Rubio has memorized the Sermon on the Mount and has done it a few times since we've been here. On a Sunday, he'll get up and the sermon is David quoting the Sermon on the Mount. Everything is red, the color red. It's not that much. But Paul said, if you can let the words of Christ dwell in your heart, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you, 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 he's appealing to a higher calling for us. Not just the literal, don't do this, don't do that, but to get your mind elevated. Paul is encouraging them here to fill up their minds with good things. And it's a battle. The devil is at, after us to try and fill our minds with trivia, evil desires, anger, all the things is competing for space. It's like when I worked in the grocery store. In that grocery store, there was a limited amount of shelf space. And different manufacturers would compete and say, okay, we'll give you so much off the cost that you'll give us another foot of shelf space in that store. There's always a battle for space. And that's the way it is in our bank. So, So Paul doesn't explain exactly what's going on at the church in Colossae where he's writing this to. And we talked last week about um, there seems to be some of this in the background. And you can hear as, as Hilton is talking about what he's calling them to. Uh, we might have a sense of what he's calling them away from. So I went over this, but uh, just to, to recap it for those of you who are just visiting. Uh, it seems as though some of the church they are following this trend where they are looking to advance spiritually, um, where they're seeking new experience, kind of insider knowledge. Uh, but for them, uh, spiritual progress was not about growing into Christ, but was about becoming more spiritual than their neighbor. So it was a very competitive kind of move. Part of the way they go about this growth seems to be with asceticism, uh, some harsh treatment of the body, uh, perhaps also bringing in certain Jewish ritual practices like Sabbath and food, um, restrictions, some pagan influence as well. And so Paul calls them to a different way of, um, of, of living out their Christian calling. So 
uh, with some of this in the background, I might highlight uh, how this might be in conversation with what Hilton uh, addressed. So for instance, in chapter 3, as he opens up, he talks about they've been raised with Christ, uh, and then he calls them to proper seeking, a proper setting their heart on something. So what they are to seek is not insider knowledge or some sort of uh, novel experience, uh, but they are to seek uh, that which is above. Now, Paul could very easily be misunderstood here as he talks about them seeking that which is in heaven, not on earth, that which is above, not below. What he's not saying is put your head up in the clouds um, and uh, just think you know, in some sort of immaterial heavenly realm and hate everything earthly because he goes on, as Hilton addressed, to describe what that looks like. So it's not um, only think about quote-unquote spiritual things, but it is get rid, and what he describes as earthly, is those vices. Uh, sexual immorality, uh, wrath, anger, hatred, greed. And what you put on is those heavenly things. Not heavenly because they only exist up there, but heavenly because they are characteristic of the one who rules in heaven. So it is not heaven versus earth, uh, but rather it is God and what characterizes God's rule versus that which is apart from God, which is merely earthly. uh, That he is contrasting here. So, instead of this ascetic kind of hating the body. Paul doesn't say you advance by uh, harsh restrictions of the body, but you advance by putting to death, not your flesh, but vice. And instead, you clothe yourself uh, with virtue, uh, to uh, borrow a category like that. And, and Hilton is, uh, I think Hilton's right that Paul is bringing in baptismal imagery of taking off a robe as you go into the baptismal waters and then putting on something new. It is this symbolic move of, of stripping off sin and those vices and taking on the new nature, being clothed in Christ. A powerful kind of imagery there. And, um, and it is a, a now and not yet kind of experience. So um, as Paul goes on to describe, one other thing I might highlight in that section, uh, some of these vices are not just internal, uh, but they're also communal. Uh, something that Paul continues to address is how uh, these practices uh, create division in the community. So as he's going to talk about the peace of Christ, he's also going to include this in that there's no longer slave or free, Jew or Greek, um, barbarian, Scythian, uh, so that these things are not only corrupting ourselves, uh, but it has the larger effect of corrupting and dividing our communities. So we put to death that, we put on the new nature of Christ. And uh, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Um, The language there of rule, I don't know what some of your translations say, guide. Anyway, it's it's a governing kind of verb here. Uh, This is what shapes who we are, or what is to shape who we are as the church, uh, as the word of Christ dwells in us. I can't believe Hilton, a good Church of Christer, didn't highlight verse 16. I love that. Oh, for me, all right. You, that's dangerous. I've got a Pentecostal Nazarene background. I could, I could get this wrong. Uh, so we're, let the, we're here to pounce on that. Okay, all right. Uh, so let the, uh, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Notice how uh, part of how we experience and how we live this out, how we clothe ourselves in Christ, um, is, is by teaching and admonishing one another through song. Uh, that that um, what we're doing in class is good, but there is a, a, a second layer or a, a layer that uh, song, music can get to sometimes that has an effect 
uh, that the spoken word alone does not have. Uh, and so it matters that we sing, and it matters what we sing. Uh, someone quipped once, uh, Christians don't tell lies to one another, they go to church and sing them to one another, uh, which is his way of saying. Sometimes our hymnody uh, carries uh, bad theology, and so it matters uh, what kind of theology is expressed in our songs, uh, because it has this uh, effect of shaping who we are, how we see God, how we see our community. Uh, so music matters. There is no um, good way to understand or to exactly parse what he means by psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, or songs from the Spirit. One person has suggested that psalms might refer to the Old Testament psalms. Hymns might refer to those hymns of Christ, like you get in Philippians 2. Um, and spiritual songs might be more spontaneous singing. Um, but it's, it's unclear. Uh, but this definitely does not address the instrumental question, uh, as, as some might hope. But I guess the psalms were put to instruments, so... But the controversies uh, of the past, mm -hmm. uh, with the advent of multiple-part harmony, mm -hmm. when that came along, that was a controversy. They argued about uh, having songbooks. Yeah. They argued about shape notes versus regular notes. Huh. I remember my grandfather attending what was called a sacred heart singing, where they didn't sing the words, they simply sang the notes. And uh, it's been throughout, there's all kinds of controversy with any time there was a change. Yeah. People do not accept change very. So I'm sure when they started having songwriters, that was a. That was <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and maybe that that uh, reveals that sometimes we've lost the focus of how songs are to shape our hearts and minds um, as opposed to you know, getting it exactly right, the, the uh, music or the uh, delivery of it. Okay, 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Uh, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, Paul um, addresses different people in the household. Um, we're going to, since we're doing Ephesians later, I'm going to cover this, or Hilton will, whenever we get to it, in more detail. Paul has an expanded section where he talks about uh, how husbands and wives are to relate to one another, uh, children and parents, uh, slaves, um, and their masters. So I won't go into much detail here, since we will cover that again, but I will, I will offer a few notes uh, to maybe put this into some perspective. First, uh, five times in here, Paul re refers to the Lord. Uh, so uh, what I think he is, is uh, working with here is the sense in the first century in which the household, as he's addressing the household, is like a little microcosm of the state. So for instance, Augustus was father of the fatherland. Um, so uh, how Augustus is as Lord Caesar uh, is to be reflected in how the paterfamilias is as Lord of the house or uh, master of the house. Uh, so Paul, instead of looking at Lord Caesar, is looking at Lord Jesus as the paradigm for how one lives in their household relationships. Um, so with that in mind then, I think, and we'll talk about this more in Ephesians, that, that this isn't so much Paul saying, this is the God-ordained household situation. The man on, you know, the hierarchy with the man, and then the wife, and then slaves and children uh, for all times and all cultures. Instead, what I think he's saying is, this is how the household is set up in the first century Greco-Roman world. And so you live in that first century Greco-Roman world in a way that reflects the Lord Jesus, not the Lord Caesar. 
and how one treats one another. And um, for those who think I'm, I'm getting a little slippery here, uh, let me suggest a couple things, and I'll come back to this when we get to Ephesians. One, we don't view the master-slave relationship as something that we should continue to practice, uh, even though Paul references, references it here. And second, when Paul addresses children being obedient to their parents, he's likely talking to adult children who are living with the patriarch of the family, which means uh, that adult children then would need to be submissive to their parents. And I don't think anyone's up for holding on to the master-slave relationship or uh, the sense in which adult married children with their own families still need to be doing what their father tells them to do uh, explicitly. So we realize that we're already taking this as a, in a sense of that was applying to that culture. And so we have to think about how to live characterized by the Lord and our current cultural uh, um, experience. So you might ask, well, why doesn't Paul just create a whole new household structure? Well, one, that doesn't seem to be his point. Um, some people suggest it's because Paul wants to be relatable to the culture, doesn't want to produce unnecessarily stu unnecessary stumbling blocks uh, to a culture who, when outsiders come in and they see uh, a household that looks nothing like what they're used to, it might be too much for them. The truth is we're not sure. It's interesting, though, as Paul addresses slaves and wives, that he sends this message with a slave, Onesimus, who we already learned in Philemon was to be regarded as a beloved brother, just as the master Philemon was. And he also addresses Nympha, who is a female who seems to be the head of the church um, in, where is that? Laodicea, maybe? Uh, so, it's, um, however we make sense of this, we keep in mind that Paul is already kind of shifting the cultural understandings of slaves and masters, as we learned in Philemon, um, and whatever we think of a patriarchal system, he's addressing uh, this letter to, um, in addition to a church in which a woman seems to be uh, the patron of the church. Um, so just some, some food for thought uh, there. So chapter 4, uh, verse 1, and then we'll get into Paul's kind of generic teaching, and then he gives some shout-outs. Uh, Masters... Provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So he reminds uh, the master that there is some sort of even ground here between the master and the slave because ultimately they uh, are appealing to the same master who is God. And in the first century, slaves were regarded as, uh, by nature, that's overall in the first century, slaves were regarded by nature as inferior. And so what Paul is doing is he's already kind of undoing that by saying, look, both of you are on the same ground before the real master. Uh, same, same word here, by the way, for the master of the house, kurios, and master Jesus is also kurios. So in kurios, in Christ, these relationships are adjusted to reflect who the true Lord is. All right, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Watchfulness here, which we might understand to be readiness, um, is not... So when I lived in, um, in Pasadena, people were putting up billboards, um, about, this was about six or seven years ago, uh, because they thought that the return of Christ was happening, I think it was May 12, 2011, I think was the date. Anyway, some guy, Harold Camping, um, uh, predicted the end of the world and so people were selling their stuff putting up billboards I mean they they thought the end was coming um, it didn't and then he predicted that he was six months off 
or didn't come again, and then I don't think he's made any predictions since then. Although he did make a prediction about 12 years prior to all that. So, you know, he's professional at making these predictions. Um, but the way they pr practice readiness was a disengagement with the world. That is not the readiness of Christianity. Christian readiness is not disengagement. Uh, instead, it is clothing oneself with the virtues of Christ and living that out appropriately. That's what readiness looks like uh, when one understands it properly. But he adds in here that you do this in part by being thankful. Uh, thankfulness um, helps attune us to who God is, and um, I think it energizes us to actually live that out. So verse 3, pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. They are looking for knowledge, kind of insider knowledge. Paul says that mystery is revealed. That mystery is Christ among us, Christ that has shaped us and made us new. And if you want to talk about advancement, Paul says this is what advancement looks like. I'm who am living this out. I'm in chains. It is not about progressing and becoming ever um, increasingly better than those around you. It's ever increasing service for the sake of the gospel. Verse 4, pray that I may proclaim it as clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Uh, so there is this sense um, in which graciousness in this um, context, gracious speech, might not only be kind and merciful speech, but also, in a sense, artful uh, speech. So it's, it's well seasoned. It's presented uh, thoughtfully and, um, and artfully. And then Paul, Paul um, references several people that are going to be getting this letter. So, for instance, in verse 8, I am sending uh, Tychicus uh, to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. There's no postal system, so someone carries the letter. And this is important to know um, because the letter carrier can also bring additional information, as he says here. And part of that additional information can also be um, explanation about the letter. Uh, so... As someone reads the letter, the letter would be read out loud to the community. There might be some confusing parts in it. If you've ever read Paul, you know there's confusing parts in it. And the letter carrier can be there and can be an interpreter as well. Um, verse 9, he is coming with Onesimus. This was the slave that uh, Paul interceded for in the book of Philemon. Uh, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greeting. He is always wrestling in prayer for you so that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. This is what prayer is about, uh, not those experiences the Colossians are chasing. Verse 15, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So here is a female patron that seems to be uh, in some ways a leader in this house church. Um, verse 16, After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Uh, Paul seems to recognize that as he's writing, he's writing something that is more than just for one church body. It's almost as though he's anticipating that it's going to speak to multiple church bodies. And then two things in verse 18, and then I'm going to make a quick comment about uh, a larger view of salvation in Colossians. Paul says, I write this in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Um, Paul doesn't write his own letters. Uh, for the most part, he has someone else write them for him, a scribe. So if you've ever come across this guy named, a very popular writer, um, someone like Bart Ehrman, um, who is going to, um, he's going to make cases about why you might not trust the Gospels or trust the letters as being authentic or really from Paul. 
One of the cases people make is because the language sometimes shifts between like Paul's letter to the Galatians and Paul's letter to the Colossians or Paul's letters uh, to Timothy and Titus. And one of the things that's not taken into account is the language may shift because Paul is using different scribes uh, for that. As we can see here, Paul's writing the very end of it in his own hand. And finally, he says, remember my chains. Um, and I just wanted to read this from uh, Chrysostom that was in my, this is a 5th century um, iPhone. Yes, 5th century iPhone. Uh, and as he's talking about uh, this is, yeah, yeah. Uh, as he's talking, as he calls people to remember his chains, Chrysostom says, maybe he's not just saying, think about me and my chains, but but allow my chains to be a lens by which you um, make sense of your affairs. For those who are pursuing this false teaching, were they to remember his chains, uh, they might realize that true advancement and true knowledge looks different than what they're pursuing. But here's how Chrysostom puts this, and then I'll give a two-minute rundown of this. Do you covet any of the things that are your neighbors? Remember Paul's bonds, and you'll see how unreasonable it is that while he was in perils, you should be in delights. Is your heart set upon self-indulgence? Picture to your mind Paul's prison house. You are his disciple, his fellow soldier. How is it reasonable that your fellow soldier should be in bonds and thou in luxury? Are you in affliction? Do you deem yourself forsaken? Hear Paul's bonds and you will see that to be in affliction is no proof of being forsaken. Have you ordered your slave to be put in bonds and were you angry and exasperated? Remember Paul's bonds and you will straightway stay your anger. Remember that we are of the bound not the binders, of the bruised of heart, not the bruisers. Pretty powerful way of thinking about remembering Paul's chains. So in closing, then I'll see if Hilton has anything to add. Uh, as Paul addresses what we might think of typically as salvation, he uses really rich and varied language for it. You've been given an inheritance, rescued from darkness, transferred into the kingdom, set free, forgiven. He has reconciled all things. Gentiles are included. You're presented holy, faultless, and blameless. He has destroyed the record of debt. Your life is hidden with Christ. You've been given a new nature, filled with Christ, buried and raised, and you've been brought to peace. I mean, it's just powerful language of what has been accomplished uh, through the cross uh, and the resurrection of Jesus. And one of the things I like to draw my students' attention to is how we often define salvation in terms that are uh, exclusively individual, uh, future-oriented, and only dealing with forgiveness. So we tend to think, how are we saved? It's about me, uh, my sins, and what happens after I die. All of which are true, but that does not even begin to um, capture all of this. Because it is individual, but it's also communal. Notice the language here of like a Gentile inclusion, and peace is bringing people together. Uh, it is future-focused, but it is also something that can be experienced now. Notice the past tense language. You are rescued. You are transferred. Uh, he forgave. You are filled. There's so much of this now already breaking in. Um, and um, it is not, um, what if I, it is not um, individual, what have I left out here? Future, well, oh yes. Um, personal is another thing. It's often about me. Uh, notice the language of all things, that what he's doing is, is also cosmic, uh, as he is making uh, all things new. All right. Okay. I sometimes think I have the attention span of a gnat. I'm like that Super Bowl at They'd had little when I was a kid. I would have had it. <laughs> <laughs> My mother was crazy. You didn't know about that. So. <laughs> 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 that brings you. That's what 
<laughs> but in Colossians, as he says, let heaven fill your thoughts. Do not think about only the things that are If all we think about is what's going on in this earth, it'll drive us crazy. The problem, the evil, uh, we have almost abandoned watching news. It's just too depressing. Uh, and back in Philippians 4, we had the verse 4 8. As he encourages, here, here's something we can do to help this idea of filling up the shelf space. You know, it used to be funny to watch when I was a, when I was a stock boy in the grocery store, watching the bread guys fight over the row, two rows of, of loaves because it meant additional sales. If they could fill up two more rows, they'd have to fill. But here, here's the way you do: it. fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right. Think about things that are full of integrity people who are good in your life. Think about things that are pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of prayer. That's the battle. Trying to keep a balance between what you're thinking about in this life and what the realities of heaven. Thanks for being here. We're glad you're here. Next week, if it's not raining, I promise to take my grandson Hank to the Titans game so I will not be in Sunday school. Josh will be here. But uh, we'll start Ephesians chapter 1. We only have six more sessions, so you better take advantage of it while you can. <laughs> Predestination, free will next Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> well, I <don't> <laughs>